2: Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Hawthorne. Three hundred years ago today, Charles Edward Stuart, or Bonnie Prince Charlie, as he's better known, was born. To mark the anniversary, in the January issue of BBC History Magazine, historian and author Jacqueline Riding weighed up two contrasting characterisations of the Jacobite leader. One as a courageous freedom fighter, the other as a haughty coward. Here, in conversation with our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, Jacqueline explores the prince's remarkable life and legacy.
3: Right, so Jacqueline, the um, headline of your feature in our January issue is Bonnie Prince Charlie, Scottish Superhero or Italian Coward? Now, that uh, kind of hints at the ferocious battle that's been fought over the uh, prince's reputation over the the past 250 years or so. uh, To his supporters, he's, kind of seen as this valiant, charismatic figure, while to his distractors, he's seen as a haughty, sort of self-absorbed fantasist whose reckless bid for the throne inflicted unnecessary pain and suffering. I mean, I just wonder if you could present the case for both the prosecution and the defence and and tell us which side of the debate you come down on.
4: Well, I think the, the first thing we need to be clear about from the onset is that Charles was, in fact... Neither was nor is a su- Scottish superhero, nor indeed an Italian coward. So I think those two caricatures, which is what they are, uh, can be dismissed immediately. Um, I think what it seems, what seems to be clear to me is that the incumbent, it was incumbent on the alternative exiled family uh, to be not just ready to rule, but ready to rule wisely and well. Um, in order to sway or attempt to sway the many sort of waverers, not just the supporters but the waverers and even those who oppose them, that they would present not just a viable but frankly better alternative to the Hanoverians. So the very fact that Charles was not fully prepared, and that's putting it kindly, um, for his part in a restored Stuart monarchy is quite frankly astonishing. I mean, it's not like he didn't have decades to prepare for it i mean he was 24 when he arrived in scotland and 25 when he left um so you would think he would have been better prepared for his destiny uh, so i think that that is astonishing and that's the main um sort of that's the main argument for the prosecution in a way um I mean, for example, you know, a basically sympathetic observer, the Frenchman Charles de Brosse, who obviously visited the Palazzo del Rey, the Jacobite headquarters in Rome, on several occasions was perfectly pleasant to them, was in some ways a supporter, was very affable about them. But even he describes Charles in his late teens... As a mediocre wit, I mean, it's 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 not great, is it? (laughs) Quite damning, yeah. It is a bit damning, and and then even worse from a Frenchman's point of view, less polished than princes should be at his age. I mean, to to an extent, it says it all. So I think the prosecution is quite is uh, is is that really Um, that if if that's the purpose of your life, why are you not better prepared? And I, in that sense, you would also look to his father and his tutors, who, as various um, Scottish observers um, make clear, that uh, why hadn't they prepared him better for, for, this, for this destiny? Um, I think it, what I mean by it being incumbent on the, the exile family to show themselves to be better, because they have to present a better alternative. Because as the decades go on, since the initial exile of the Stuarts in 1685 onwards, um, it's becoming more and more difficult um, to argue the case for a Stuart restoration because, quite frankly, people were getting more and more used to the Hanoverians. They were becoming less and less foreign, which was one of the great arguments against them when they first arrived. So time is running out. And that's why, to me, it feels more astonishing—that even more astonishing—that Charles simply doesn't seem to have been ready for it, ready in spirit and in courage and in hutzpah. But, but as far as I can see, simply not ready mentally, sort of mentally in the in his intellect, in in the wherewithal, in preparation to rule, not only to succeed in an armed. Rising or a a military campaign, but to then rule whether as regent or eventually as King Charles III of Great Britain and Ireland.
3: So how would his supporters uh, counter that argument?
4: Well, the staunch supporters, which is the one thing that, that sort of unites all Jacobites, is that the Stuarts are the true dynasty of Great Britain and Ireland, And come hell or high water, they should return. So in that sense, whether they're good, bad or indifferent, I suppose, makes no difference. It's simply that they are the true dynasty and therefore they should return. And then, of course, there's varying different reasons for each group and individual as to why they specifically want the return of the Stuarts. And it might be as simple as promises of an independent Scotland or a return of Catholicism as the state religion um, or whatever it is, whatever they needed to say to convince an individual to support them is more or less what they were doing. So, And to make things relatively fluid is also useful because it's all about the PR. It's all about what you're promising to do because at that point, of course, you aren't delivering on it. So uh, <laughs> you just sure. have to simply get the foot in the door, through the door, and then seated on the throne, and then, of course, that's where the, uh, that's where you'll get tested. But before that point, it's a matter of arguing that you will make the citizens of Great Britain and Ireland's lives better for whatever reason.
3: So, how would you rate Bonnie Prince Charlie's uh, performance as a as a leader during the 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 Great Uprising of 1745?
4: Well, he he caused it to happen in the first place by sheer force of will. Uh, there was a failed invasion attempt at the turn of 1743 to 44. He then spends over a year kicking his heels in Paris incognito because the French just don't want to acknowledge he's still there because he was supposed to be leading, nominally at least, leading this invasion. Um, He's sort of kicking his heels, sort of waiting for another opportunity to come about. The French, as ever, are... Quite ambivalent about supporting or not the Stuarts' restoration. It seems to be a sort of not fundamental but useful element of their foreign policy to, as they describe it, make the British government a little tottering. So every time, if you threaten the imminent arrival of a Stuart prince, all of a sudden, you know, the British government looks a bit unstable, or certainly more unstable. Um, you stir the pot of rebellion within Great Britain, again, to make the British government look unstable. And even if it doesn't succeed, it's useful for the time that they are, or you know, that they're pulling resources towards a, an imminent rising. You know, it, it's, it's, it's as simple as that. It's as practical as that. Sometimes it was a sort of philosophical thing, a fellow Catholic monarch, a cousin... It was a family thing, but in the main, it was uh, real politic from the from the French's point French point of view. So the very fact that Charles managed to under the radar of the French king, who probably knew what was going on, but again, it's always useful for <laughs> for the Stuarts to be on manoeuvres. Um, he, he may may well have known what was going on, but certainly pretended he didn't. This is the French monarch uh, Louis the Fifteenth, but certainly under the noses of of. The ministers at Versailles, or most of the ministers at Versailles, but also uh, keeping his father completely ignorant way back in Rome, he does manage to accrue, you know, a, a, a pot of cash, two ships, some men and arms, and manages to sail off to, to the west coast of uh, of Scotland to instigate a rising. No matter how modest, it's his sheer force of will his sense of destiny that that drives him on. So I think that it's a long answer to the question, but I think you just have to just look at that that instance, that circumstance, um, and recognise what sort of character he would have to be in order to do that, to achieve that. Then, of course, sure. when he arrives, not many people are happy to see him. They might be technically or sort of, you know, uh, from a sort of emotional point of view, happy to see him. but uh, But, of course if you rise in support of him, you're risking everything. You're risking your life, your family, your estates, your property, absolutely everything. And a lot of the loyal clans, particularly in the Western Highlands, had risen before and suffered for it. So they were clearly, by 1745, increasingly reticent, even though their heart told them. You know, it was trying to get their head <laughs> to join with their heart to, in order to follow the prince. There's also a bit of this the king over the water thing. It's it's quite nice, you know, it's quite comforting that he's a thousand miles away in Rome when you're, you know, sort of raising your glass to him. You know, you don't you're not tested, are you? But I think Charles just got fed up with the words and wanted some action. And I think, again, that reflects on his character. It shows you what sort of character he is. He's impatient, but he showed great patience until he had no more patience, <laughs> and then he's off. You know, he's and he's he's doing it for himself. And I show that I think that shows some would say recklessness. I think it shows great courage. Um, but of course, it wasn't just his life he was risking. He was risking everyone who rose in support of him. He was risking their lives too.
3: Now I always laboured under the uh, misapprehension that the. Jacobite movement was predominantly Scottish and Catholic, but as you point out in the feature, that wasn't the case, was it? I wonder if you could explain how wide-ranging support was for this cause.
4: I think it is actually quite difficult to quantify the breadth and depth of support for the Stuarts. Certainly by the seventeen forties, partly because those who were staunch supporters had gone through previous risings and plots which had failed and though and therefore were less were more reticent to be openly jacobite and as you know the whole thing about jacobite material culture is it's covert it's secret you know it is after all treason under the current regime it's treason to even correspond with the stuarts in rome let alone rise armed rebellion in support of them so um it is difficult to quantify the 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 sheer mm-hmm. scale of the support Therefore, the rising itself um, is the only indication we've got, in a sense, of, of dedication to the cause to the point of actually risking your life for it. So there are varying degrees, levels of support, if you sort of I mean. But uh, I think even so, I think we can safely say that there was a, a spread, even if it wasn't even, across the whole British Isles, because we must include Ireland here as well as Great Britain. Um and that that support may have been greater in certain areas, such as the Western Highlands, which is where he lands. Because of that reason, he's more likely to get uh, a quick win in the Western Highlands, which then might encourage other Jacobites to rise in support. You know, he's got to show that somebody somewhere is willing to support him, otherwise there's no rising, there's no, there's no uh, restoration. Um, so that would be places like the Western Highlands, as I say, or Lancashire, for example. So there's there's obvious places, certainly the British government were aware that certain areas of England, Scotland, and, and certainly Ireland, where there was a strong residual support for the Stuarts, so they were keeping an eye on those areas, <laughs> um, because that's the likely place where this the momentum would occur. And therefore, unsurprisingly, that's exactly the route that the Jacobite army takes. It does a feint to Scotland, across Scotland to Edinburgh, uh, where he obviously sits and holds court for five weeks, you know, gathering strength, arms, men, momentum, etc., and then the army crosses back to the west side of Great Britain and advances down through Carlisle, through Lancashire, into Derbyshire, which again has a strong Stuart support or believed to have strong Stuart support, and arrives in Derby. So that you can see the route they took is the route that would hopefully encourage English Jacobites. Alongside their Scottish cousins, to rise in support, and that's precisely why they took that path
3: Mate, um you also argue in the feature that um bolly Prince Charlie's character, his his strengths and his weaknesses as, as an individual uh, were very much a product of his upbringing in Rome. I mean I wonder if you could elaborate on that a little, please
4: well he's uh he's born in rome raised in rome so he is very distant from the nations that he believes he should one day be king of and i think that very fact is is an issue it is a it's a problem it's an essential problem he has no personal experience he's never set foot on british soil <laughs> until he turns up in scotland in the july of 1745 you know and he's in, in his in his mid 20s so he on a very basic level, is very reliant on either reading about these nations and these countries or hearing about them or listening to other people talking about them. Um, And as I say in the article, this is increasingly sentimental and nostalgic. Um, It also means there's a very great potential, and it certainly manifests itself, that there's going to be um, a, a, a sort of exaggeration of the levels of support if only to simply keep the Stuarts buoyant, to keep their their eye on the prize, as it were. Because if it was known that the uh, support in Great Britain was sliding, you know, it become increasingly difficult for the Stuarts as people, for the Stuarts themselves, you know, the prince himself, to whir up the enthusiasm, you know, to to continue. Um, I wonder whether that's partly why the father, who's now in his fifties in the seventeen uh, forties. Um, why that might be part of his melancholic? Well, why he's so melancholic, because in a way he's seeing the prize slip away. You know, so, so, so he's, he's kind
3: of the original pretender. Is that is that right? He's
4: the he's what's known as the old pretender. He's yeah. James Francis Edward Stuart, who's the the baby who's allegedly the warming pan baby. He's the one who's born in 1688, which causes the entire sort of crisis, the constitutional crisis. And eventually the sort of ejection um, of James II, his father, second and seventh of Scotland, his ejection from the British Isles and eventual exile. And then it just simply kickstarts the whole Jacobite uh, you know, period, the whole, sure. the whole campaigns. Um, so his father, you know, he's he's seen plots come and go. He, he's, And I think he's, uh, and he is described by most people who see him as sort of a perfectly nice person, sort of intelligent, pleasant, but, desperately sort of leaning on his Catholicism as a way of, I suppose, justifying his existence or at least explaining it. Mm. Um, uh, But also as the the years and decades go on, the more disasters he, you know, the more sort of um, failures... of the the various risings and plots occur, the more exiles turn up at the court who require financial support (laughs) as well as everything else. Um, And, you know, the more pressure is put on him with very meagre resources. He is, you know, he is at the the whim and mercy of the Pope um, and the French who support him financially and so on. So you can imagine it's quite a drag. It must have been... You know, the idea of being in exile for decades, you know, trying to keep that movement going, trying to keep the idea of a restoration buoyant and possible, even if just for his own, his son's sanity, you know, whose very purpose is to be the Prince of Wales of a Stuart monarchy in Britain, must have been relentless, must have been relentless. Um, so, So I think that must all feed into his, well, it certainly feeds into his, when he grabs the opportunity, when it turns up, for sure um and uh, and that certainly happens in the in the summer of 1745 um but it also means i suppose it's also part of this issue this problem of him not being sufficiently clued up not being sufficiently ready um prepared for a restoration for, for being the prince of wales um it just fe- seems to me feeds into that the the sheer distance of it this sort of isolation and then this reliance uh, on people telling you that there's still support there, that there's you know, this is what Britain is, this is how England is run, this is what the, the government is. Everyone hates the usurpers, you know, the Germans. Everybody, you know, you're constantly being told things and it must be very difficult to know who to believe and who not to believe. And in the article, we obviously talk a little bit about him having this very close-knit group of people around him and I think it's completely understandable that he leans so heavily on these people for sort of sustenance, you know, sort of moral support, you know, um, and personal emotional sustenance during the whole thing, but also, and perhaps more sort of alarmingly, um, for opinions on how to proceed, how to, how to, how this this campaign, this military campaign, should roll out, and at the same time, therefore, ignoring other people who may well be better placed to advise him, particularly in the middle of a, a military campaign, such as Lord George Murray, for example, one of his Scottish commanders. Um, so I think that's, that's, it seems to me, everything feeds back. It's almost obvious, isn't it? Everything feeds back to that that upbringing and childhood. And the other thing we, that comes up in the, um, in the article, which I think is worth stressing, is Catholicism, of course, because it was the great barrier to the return of the Stuarts is that they were intending to be the Catholic mon- monarchs of a predominantly Protestant country, i.e., well, nation, i.e., Great Britain. Um, and no other European country would necessarily. I mean, France wouldn't countenance that. And in fact, Henry IV, famously a Protestant who becomes king of France, converts to Catholicism for precisely that reason. So, um, most people would simply presume the monarch was the same religion as the nation that they, they preside over. Um, but, the, but the Stuarts, uh, whether James II you know, uh, and seventh, or indeed his son, James Francis Edward Stuart, um, both seem to, it seems to be the red line, it's the line in the sand that they're not willing to step over, is, is that the idea of conversion. But Charles Edward, I think, is perhaps cannier than either his father or his grandfather because he knows that's, that that is a major stumbling block because it doesn't matter how good they might or might not be as monarchs, there's always the issue and there's always that that's going to be held against them, that they are Catholics. Um, so I think that, uh, that uh, again, the upbringing in Rome might well have and the fact that his father was so devoutly Catholic and overtly Catholic even to his detriment as the pretender as it were of the 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 throne of um, Great Britain and Ireland, uh, even in the face of that continues to be a devout Catholic and overt Catholic and refuses to convert um, I think that that again is quite a crucial uh circumstance um, for Charles's upbringing and how he himself approaches Catholicism. And I think to say he's ambivalent is, is an understatement. I think he, well, in fact, we know he converts to the Church of England when he finally arrives in London in 1750. So I think he was willing to, he thought that London was worth giving up the mass <laughs> in reverse, yeah. as it were, to, uh, to yeah. Henry IV and
2: Paris. Still to come on the History Extra podcast...
4: Um, But eventually he seems to ease into it. So he, even to the extent of dressing up as a woman, as Betty Burke, which he thoroughly enjoys. um, And, uh, you know, in a dress and a mop cap and the whole thing.
0: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all.
3: Okay, um, uh, I guess you could argue that uh, the turning point in this story occurs um, not not in Italy or Scotland, but in the English town of Darby. Um, So, Bonnie Prince Charlie uh, sails to Scotland in 1745, he declares an uprising, he rallies a formidable Jacobite army and they march south into England. Um, And then they reach Darby, arguably of the enemy at their mercy, but then suddenly they turn around and head back to Scotland. Um, Can you explain how the Jacobites reached that decision and and how it impacted on Bonnie Prince Charlie himself in terms of his authority and motivation?
4: We've almost got to wind back to October when the Jacobite army uh, was in Edinburgh and Charles was holding court, was resident at Holyrood House. Even then the Scottish commanders, and his in the Jacobite army, the commanders were predominantly Scottish. The, the officers were predominantly Scottish. They were reticent to leave Edinburgh. They were reticent to leave Scotland. Um, and it was, due, again, due to the fierce force of will, the charm or whatever you want to call it, charisma of Charles is that he persuaded them to leave Scotland. They wanted to sit pretty and, you know, and uh, sort of uh, consolidate their position in Scotland. And he persuaded them to advance into England. Um, So, you know, he was on borrowed time in a way from the very moment they stepped foot in England. And as they're advancing through England, there's barely anybody from England joins them until they arrive in Manchester. They've gone through Lancashire got to Manchester, and then you get about 300 men, predominantly Lancastrians, but sort of some from Yorkshire, one from London. You know, there's a few odds and sods. But that's the English regiment, the only English regiment in the uh, Jacobite army. Now, you know, we shouldn't poo-poo an entire regiment to 300 men because the army itself was only 6,000 oh. at this point. So that's a sizable chunk of the army. Nonetheless, it wasn't the droves that Charles had been promising. So even in Manchester, <laughs> Lord George Murray saying, Derby, not going any further than Derby, because of course by this point they're starting to hear that the British army and the British government are rallying. So in fact, by the time they get to Derby, they hear that there's three armies converging on them, or at least there's two converging on them, one from the south-east and one from the north-east, and then you've got this famous army, Gathering on Finchley Common, which Hogarth famously shows the troops marching to Finchley in his painting at the Foundling Hospital, a Foundling Museum now, um, that army is accruing there. So there are three uh, forces aligning against them, which of course they didn't have when they were advancing from Edinburgh down in through the northwest and into the west side of England. So the opportunity to escape back up into Scotland, is the time is is running out for them to do that. So Derby is the moment where that decision has to finally be made. And there's also nothing, they haven't heard anything from the French invasion force, which is gathering on the northwest coast of, of France. They have no idea if they're on their way, arriving, still thinking about it. They have, just have no idea. There's been no up-to-date intelligence. That combines... For the again the predominantly Scottish commanders, the officers, to say, "Sorry, we've gone this far, our you know our cousins, the English, have not risen. It's not for us to defend them against the usurpers. The Hanoverians, you know, they need to do it themselves. So we're we're off. We're off back to Scotland, and we need to consolidate our position there. The one thing they have heard is that, in fact, there is a a, a second Scottish army or, or Jacobite army, predominantly Scottish, with Irish as well and French and so on, gathering in the northeast of of Scotland. So it seems to them that, in fact, their best bet is to return to Scotland. And consolidate, as I say, their position there with a much bigger army sure. um, than they could possibly get now in uh, in England in order to to fight the various armies converging on them so militarily it makes sense to retreat back into Scotland and then and do exactly what the commanders the officers had always wanted to do, which is to sit sit in Scotland and sort of defend that position um Charles, of course, doesn't just want to be King of Scotland, he wants to be King of Great Britain, and the big prize for him is London. London is the capital of Great Britain, is the capital of England, is the biggest city by far. It's about population of about just over six hundred thousand to Edinburgh's fifty thousand. You know, this is a big city. Yeah. It's where everything is, you know, and it's and presumably also being an exile all he's ever heard of is how wonderful London is. <laughs> you yeah. can just imagine, he that's the prize. So he's determined to, to, to march on. I think by the time they've had this council of war when they're in, in um, Derby at the early part of um, December, very few people are supporting him at all. I think he's managed to persuade one officer to to support him, but obviously there was too much against him. And so he has to allow that he's failed in this instance and the great prize is within the, his grasp, but not, not this time. So they turn around and, and at you know, great pace return to Scotland with a very sulky Charles Edward Stuart dragging his heels behind them.
3: And so what happened next? They they retreat to Scotland and then the next big showdown, am I, am I right in saying that was at Culloden?
4: Well, there's another one at um, uh, Falkirk. There's another battle at Falkirk, which technically the Jacobites win too. So, in fact, by the time they get to Culloden, in the April, middle of April in 1746, the 16th of April, the battle itself, um, they haven't actually lost one encounter with the British army. So this is a quite a good run, you know, yeah. uh, that, they, that the Jacobite army has had. So yes, unfortunately, the, the Culloden is the is the the last throw of the dice, as it were, for for. For Charles, and it's the first time the Jacobite army is actually defeated.
3: Um, and am I right in saying that this this is a moment where his performance comes under the most scrutiny?
4: I think he's I think his. Um. It, I, I think the very fact that they fight at Culloden on that day and on that field is again his the sheer force of will of Charles Edward Stuart. It's his decision to do it. So in a way. The last throw of the dice, the prospect of the last throw of the dice sort of brings the old Charlie back, you know, the sort of the confidence, the chutzpah, the charm, succeeds again. And um, and once again, the army gathers and, and it fights the battle. They are not in a good position to fight that battle they are exhausted. They're hungry. This has been going on for nine months now. You know, they've run out of money. It's not, not the best Jacobite army that's fielded, it's certainly not in condition and um, and health and so on. But it's Charles who who gets them onto that field and it's Charles who's sort of shouting encouragement. And the old Charlie comes back, you know, that, that as I say, the optimist is back in the room. He's on the field and, and driving forward. his. His army, But, of course, that's the moment when when the army is actually defeated. His luck kind of runs out. Um, Yes, so therefore, because it's such a devastating defeat, the very fact it was him that got them there, well, he's the one who started the Rising in the first place, it's him that has driven them through nine months and it's him that's got them on the battlefield where they are defeated and then you've got all the ramifications of that, yes, to a vast degree, you would then turn to Charles Edward Stuart and say, your fault, you know, so... Now, this is your doing. And I, I suspect that's partly where the recriminations are getting so uh, extreme against him personally because it was so devastating. So much of the sort of anti-Charles rhetoric and memoirs are obviously have been written after Culloden, in the, in the wake of what happens after Culloden. So there's, they've got to be coloured by that. It might be interesting to have asked the question on the day, or just after, you know, you might have got a slightly different response. Who knows? But obviously the famous quote is Lord Elko screaming after him, you know, you cowardly Italian, you know, so <laughs> which is the, the sort of famous quote that obviously reverberates through the centuries. It's the it's the one that people often, you know, either know about or query depending on which side you're on. But it's a, it's a great quote and it's often used.
3: Now, one of the most uh, celebrated episodes in Bonnie Prince Charlie's life was a period he spent, I guess, on the run from government forces in in the wake of that defeat at Culloden. I mean, what was life like for a, a pampered prince as a fugitive in in northern Scotland, and and why didn't the people of the Highlands give him up to to the British government forces?
4: So, I think the interesting thing about the 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 connecting thing between the pampered prince in uh, in Rome and the prince that is the fugitive after Culloden for those five months in Culloden, is it, it sort of reveals a, a sort of inherent desire by Charles to dress up. He seems to really enjoy not only dressing up, whether, you know, different characters... But he likes to take on a part. He he embodies a part that he sort of assumes. It's very it's interesting. So, for example, you see him in Rome at masked balls in Rome, dressed as a a shepherd, you know, in in white silk and diamonds and so on. And and in fact, also as a Highlander, you know, in full Highland plaid. Uh, which was a gift from um, from one of the sort of uh, very staunch Jacobites from Scotland, um, even when he 's supposed to be incognito in in France, he goes to a fancy dress ball at Versailles, obviously a master ball, so he can sort of wander around covertly without anyone recognize him, and absolutely loves it, enjoys sort of wandering through the crowds, listening to people talking about him and stuff. He just enjoys this sort of the danger of it, the kind of covert nature of it. Perhaps that's partly also about his upbringing in Rome with all the spies around him and that kind of thing. It's, it sort of, again, feeds into into this character. So when he's on the run after Culloden for those five months, he again starts to assume the part. He starts to take on characters to, to go into fancy dress, as it were, during the course of those five months. So he starts off grumbling away like any pampered prince would about the midges and the diet and, uh, and all that. Um, but eventually he seems to ease into it. So he, even to the extent of dressing up as a woman, as Betty Burke, which he thoroughly enjoys, um, and, uh, you know, in a dress and a mop cap and the whole thing. But also later on... He's eased into the idea of him of being a Highlander, of being this this sort of uh, descendant of, of the Stuarts, the sort of ancient Scottish kings, and he's wearing a plaid and he's got a long red beard, auburn beard. Um, and he looks the part. He looks the part of a Highland chief, of, the, of an actual Highland chief. you know. So, um, and he enjoys it and he seems to have sort of eased into that. So it's, it's really interesting, that, uh, that ability, that chameleon-like ability for him to sort of shift and change according to his, to his context. And that's certainly evident in those five months. Um, and he even arrives back on French soil, apparently still dressed in, this, in the plaid. <laughs> with his beard <laughs> and so on so he must have come as quite a surprise to the uh, to the french court when he when he arrived um and then the, the sort of the other aspect of his time in the highlands uh you know sort of uh, on the run is the way that uh, the highland people themselves um didn't uh didn't give him up didn't hand him over to the countless uh raiding parties who were after him who were trying to capture him to um to 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 finally get you know get the the, the Stuart prince and he seems to be he's very well looked after he's um and and then they they simply don't um give him up despite this 30,000 pound bounty which has been on his head since the beginning of august 1745 no one gives him up and i think there's various reasons for this i think um you know it's it's sort of partly that no one wanted the prince to die or to be captured you know in their in their area you know under their keeping as it were you know um it's it's almost as if there's a principle or the custom of sanctuary or hospitality that no harm should be done to somebody who's on your land or in your house or in your area there was a a definite um um, feeling that that's that's not what what they wanted. Um, of course, you've got the the very staunch Jacobites simply want the prince to survive because in large degree that meant the survival of the Jacobite cause. So that's obviously a very obvious, that's an obvious reason why he is um, looked after and maintained during those five months in certain certain areas of Scotland in, in, um, with certain clans. Um, and then I think on a very human level, I think quite frankly, people felt sorry for him. Um, You know, you've got the bogeyman. If you're anti stuart you've got the bogeyman who lives in Rome. But when he's on your doorstep looking bedraggled and in need of help, you know, it's on a very human level. You want to extend that humanity to him. Um, So I think it's a sort of combination of those three things that um, keeps him alive and keeps him out of the hands of, of the British government and the British army. For those five months, until he finally steps onto a French ship and sails off into the mist.
3: So, what did the once he returned to, to France? What did the the rest of his life consist of? I mean, did he ever come to terms with the fact that he wasn't going to be um, British king?
4: I don't. I think he must have deep down known it clearly wasn't going to happen. I think by the time you get to the third George. On the British throne in 1760, and it's a peaceful accession as well. You, you he must have realised that that it was all the game was all but up. Um, you've also got the situation that France uh, had a major naval defeat, which meant it didn't have the wherewithal to to um, instigate a an invasion of Great Britain. And apart from which, the the whole sort of um, uh, the theatre of war, as it were, between Britain and France shifts to North America and India and all that kind of thing. So, yeah. so perhaps the Stuarts simply aren't as interesting or as useful to France as they had once been. And once the French and then then later the, the papacy, uh, or the, the Pope, um, don't support him when his father dies in 1766 and don't declare him Charles Third the game is is most certainly up. So I think he must have realised deep down, and I think, therefore, if your whole purpose of your life was a Stuart restoration, because he didn't have that strong depth of Catholicism that his father had that kind of would make sense of his life, he doesn't seem to have anything to fill this massive yawning gap um, that is, you know, the, the Stuart restoration. Uh, what was the point of him, really? And so, in a sense, you as the restoration fades understandably i think he he himself declines into bitterness and and frustration and i think if you if your finest hour had been if you know in had occurred in your mid 20s bearing in mind you live for decades after and all you've got is the memories of what happened and what might have been and the booze um you know i think i think we'd all be tempted to uh, to hit the bottle so, uh, unfortunately, it's it, it's one reason why we don't know, or people, it's not generally known, what happens to Charles after the forty five, is that his life is simply so depressing, <laughs> and so relentless um, uh, that um, it's uh, it's very easily sort of uh, described in as I have in in less than several minutes. Sure, I
3: like, despite that, despite the 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 kind of sad and low-key last few decades of his life. Body Prince Charlie has is, is proved a, 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 a really kind of romantic figure, hasn't he, over the last mm. two centuries or so? I mean, Walter Scott wrote about him. Then you've got um, like the the celebrated Outlander novels. Um, and I remember singing the Skyboat song at primary school in the early 80s.
4: Same here. <laughs> I
3: mean, uh, you know... Um, I've always found that quite fascinating. Why, why has he had such an impact on, um, on successive generations?
4: Well, I think it's sort of, you know, it, it, it is that sort of combination of romance and, and, you know, the very circumstances of his life is, is so extraordinary. You know, he, a big part of an exiled family, it, there's an essential sort of romance, but also tragedy about it, isn't there? It's it's frankly Shakespearean, isn't it? The, sure. the whole sort of, uh, the whole the whole aspect of the, uh, you know, which is what obviously Walter Scott taps into. Um, it's It's got a Shakespearean, a theatrical, a sort of tragedy, an element of tragedy about it. It's like a Greek tragedy. Um, I think it is funda- fundamentally appealing that this an inherently poignant, a royal family in exile you know and uh, and the very fact that this and he is you know everybody says he's this tall handsome young prince you know attempting to come home as he said it you know has has the air of a romance or a fairy tale um and that it proved to be a sort of doomed cause you know simply piles on the tragedy and the sense of a sort of um you know, sense of doom but also romantic you know, delicious doom, as it were. <laughs> it's life, sort of imitating art, in a way. Um, and apart from anything else, of course, you know, his success or failure absolutely mattered. You know, it's about kingdoms being won or lost. Sure. You know, uh, again, as sort of in this sort of Shakespearean way. And also, it would have had a major impact on people's lives. So, um, so inevitably, those that uh, that would have liked a Stuart restoration, you know. Uh, even now, you get people who still think that the Stuarts should be back on the throne. <laughs> <All right. laughs> I, it doesn't bother me so much. It has to be said, I'm not that bothered about. <laughs> I'm not a great such an ardent monarchist that I frankly care. Uh, I, to me, it's a It's a fascinating piece of um, piece of history, which of course does have uh, resonance into and, and reverberation into our here and now. Um, but you know, the, the, of course, life would have been different if if he had been successful. And, and inevitably, therefore, you have, you know, it's one of the bits of our British history or Scottish history or however you want to describe it, which, of course, has some of the great what-ifs um, is is associated with this, with with the 45 and, um, you know, what would have happened if Charles had succeeded. And so it's, uh, um, I think that's why it has so such poignancy.
2: That was Jacqueline writing. Jacqueline's book, Jacobite's A New History of the 45 Rebellion is published by Bloomsbury. You can also read her feature on Bonnie Prince Charlie in the January issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale now and includes features on Thomas Bucket, the History of Vaccines, the World War II Battle for Sicily and a whole lot more. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Newitt and Jack Bateman. Have a brilliant New Year's Eve. And we'll be back tomorrow when I'll be speaking to Edward Brooke Hitching about history's strangest books.